ever wish you had a reset button? What would a reset look like in your life? We've all experienced disruptive changes, profound loss, abnormalities, been on the brink of burnout. We want to offer you hope, encouragement, guidance. God promises life and life everlasting. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here today. You know, we're already on week five of this reset series. I feel like we just started, and there's so much more I'd love to be able to, to pack in uh, on each of these subjects as we talk about. I wanted to mention that the first couple of weeks, we talked about how you can reset your relationship with God the Father through his one and only son, Jesus. Uh, because Jesus is the word that God sent into the world to be a light for us. And by virtue of God's grace that's been poured out to you in Jesus, we can find the forgiveness of sin. Uh, we talked about Jesus' invitation to be born again, that we can be new creations in Christ Jesus. You can begin to live a whole new life with a whole new trajectory in Christ. And so the first couple of weeks, we unpacked that. And then the last couple of weeks, uh, we talked about how we can reset our relationship with ourselves and how the Holy Spirit uh, really is a, the transformative relationship as it relates to ourselves. If we would walk by the Holy Spirit, God would renew us from the inside out. The Holy Spirit gives us a new mind, a new heart. He is our teacher, our mentor, our human whisperer. He walks with us. He encourages us. He gives us guidance, all these things. But God, by his Holy Spirit, enables us to live holy and upright lives. And uh, inside and outside, the Spirit's agenda is that we would be completely conformed to become exactly the full maturity of Christ Jesus. And so that's very powerful. These are very powerful uh, ideas that we've been kind of touching upon. Now, today and next Sunday, we're going to talk about how God resets our relationship with family. Now, by family, we often mean our familial ties. Uh, those are usually what's primary, but not always. Uh, biological connection, genetic connection, uh, whatever. God desires that we have godly families, godly marriages, godly husbands and wives, uh, godly men and women, sons and daughters. But then on a larger scale, God desires that we would be members of Christ and of his church and that we would be a godly household of faith. And so we're going to talk about some different dimensions of family this week and next. Now, in the Bible, we have an explanation of all the origins of the families on earth, that we all trace our origin back to God, who is a father who created us in his image. The only couple that had a perfect shot at having a perfect nuclear, biological, natural, spiritual family was Adam and Eve. But we know that Adam and Eve, when entrusted with that opportunity, were the first to sin and corrupt God's design for humanity. And so Adam and Eve, the very first family, in a very painful way, was torn apart by, by, by sin, even by violence, even by murder, and all these terrible things. But as we know, uh, you know, Adam and Eve, they were the first dysfunctional family. And as children of Adam and Eve, 
Every single one of us, every one of our families in some way has become corrupted or tainted by sin. You can look at your family and there's a lot of good, and you can look at your family and say, oh, I would change that. I would ask God to transform that. And so that's the tension that we live in. Uh, sometime insta- sometimes instead of family, we think of households. The word family implies that everybody has a nuclear, biological, natural affinity with each other. But the reality for many is more like a household. Households acknowledges this idea that under one roof, you may have a variety of dynamics in your family. For example, here even at Lakeside, we have blended families. We have extended families, multi-families living under one roof. You have adopted sons and daughters. You have temporary situations like with foster care and foster children. Uh, Some of you have relatives, even distant relatives, that have come to be part of your family. So you get the idea. When you look at the Bible families, uh, even starting with Abraham, uh, you can see what a messy, tangled web of relationships you might have under one roof. And so, you know, Abraham, he had a clan, but I mean, there is a lot of dynamics there, not to revisit all that. We talked about him uh, earlier when we did Genesis. But if you feel your family is a mess, look no further than the scripture. The Bible is full of messy, patched up families and relationships, and there isn't any challenge that you're facing in your family or in your life that somebody in scripture uh, hasn't also faced. And so you can take any scenario back to scripture and find guidance for your life. And, And that's exactly how we reset our family relationships is we go back to the word and let God guide us through whatever challenge we face. I want to say this. That when you're going through stuff in your family, whether it's marriage or with kids or whatever, you may think you're the only person going through that. But I assure you, you don't know everybody in this room. If you look around this room and if you were to kind of get a a picture of every family, there are always, you're not a unicorn. There's a lot of people, you you know, that are going through the exact same stuff. And you'd be surprised that maybe even a family that you look at, they look so happy. They seem like they're the model. They seem like they got all the... The I's dotted and the T's crossed and all that kind of, maybe not. If you knew them, you might know that they share a lot of maybe what you struggle with as well. So we're talking about family. And uh, what's really beautiful is next week, we're going to talk about how in Christ, all of us are part of an even greater family. That's the family, uh, it's the kingdom of God. It's the household of faith. The body of Christ, the church. And so take Jesus, for instance. He was born into the household of Joseph. Now, Joseph wasn't his natural biological father in a narrow sense. Jesus was conceived supernaturally, not of Joseph, but of the Holy Spirit. So he had a biological connection to Mary, but not to Joseph. And so he was under Joseph's household. And uh, we don't know all that happened to Joseph throughout Joseph's life, but we know that Jesus came to have many other stepbrothers and presumably sisters. And, you know, let's not even mention, you know, like Jesus' genealogy. You know, you go back through Matthew's genealogy, and there are allusions to ancestors of Jesus. When you look up their story in the Old Testament, it's like, oh, it's like Jerry Springer stuff. So dysfunctional family Jesus is not far removed 
from those dynamics and those realities, and neither is God. So I'm saying that as an encouragement for you to look to the Word and to trust uh, the guidance of Scripture. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus' family, including his mother, there's a story where they come to take charge of him. You know, if even as an adult, if you were a misfit, if there was some kind of like, and they didn't know when Jesus started his ministry, he was teaching, he was claiming things, there were rumors and miracles, like you can imagine his family was freaked out, and they come to take charge of him, and Jesus says something interesting to his family, you know, someone he's teaching, and somebody knocks on the door and says, Jesus, your mom is coming for you, and your, your brothers and sisters are here, and he stretches out his hands to his disciples, and he said, well, here are my mother and my brothers, and whoever does the will of God, of my Father in heaven, that is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus takes the idea of family, and he enlarges it to include this idea of the household of faith of the church. So it's a very beautiful and true thing that within the body of Christ, we as brothers and sisters in Christ can have spiritual bonds that are profoundly more deep than physical or biological nuclear bonds in our own families. In the church, I have countless spiritual fathers and mothers, and I always have. Like, I could make a very, very long list. It's very crazy. In the body of Christ, I have brothers and sisters in Christ, and my bond with them is every bit as solid and strong. I have sons and daughters in the household of faith. We can be closer to people in Christ than we could ever be to flesh and blood relatives even who are outside of Christ. It's mysterious, it's glorious, it's true, it's the church, it's the kingdom of God. Jesus was establishing his church, and that's next week. So, if your biological nuclear family dreams wane and fail and disappoint, you are not without family. Because you have the church, and that is God's design. Now, this morning, we want to talk about the immediate family or our households. And I think you would agree at this point that the principles of family, of life held out in Scripture, are radically different than what's held out in modern culture. Now, I can say that as a blanket statement because you know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, the designs that are held out in Scripture can be radically different than even things we hear in pulpits in modern churches and from modern denominations. Through the years, we've had an influx of attendance at Lakeside because people have been in denominations and churches where they've abandoned God's designs and they've abandoned Scripture. and, and, uh, And folks are saying, like, we're getting way, way far away from the foundational things that God holds out to us in our word, in his word. You know, when I began preaching almost 30 years ago, I couldn't have imagined how radically our culture would drift on matters of gender, sexuality, marriage, family. There was only one guy that I remember. I was at a North American Christian convention, and Josh McDowell, you know, he was, like, talking about some stuff that he thought was going to happen. And I was like, ah, you're kind of, I don't know. You know, "Ah, that's crazy. That's crazy what you're talking about. You're a crazy man. But he was right. He was the only prophet, you know. But prophetically, he saw some stuff coming, but, like, it was stuff that not even secular culture would have been okay with, let alone Christian people. But in Romans 1, I've often referred to Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. I'm not going to read the passage and preach on that text this morning, but I do want to allude to it. 
Because what we see is that whenever or wherever people jettison fundamental truths of God, everything else becomes absurd. Even things that shouldn't be, that should be plain as the nose on your face, you know, like when you abandon the idea of God, there is nothing that gets untouched. Everything gets turned upside down, even perverted. <clears throat> so in Romans 1.18, if there is no one true creator God from whom every family on earth derives its name, who find their source in him, if there's no good God whose divine nature is reflected in the goodness of creation, if there's no powerful God whose power is evident by all that's been made, if God hasn't spoken to us by his spirit, by his prophets, through the inspired word of God, if God has not come there, if God has not revealed himself by his spoken word, the scriptures, if he hasn't come near in the flesh and blood, living word, God, who came as a light into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, if, if none of that is true, then where are we left? What is truth? When truth dies, everything becomes absurd. And we see this today, and it's especially true even in regard to family and many issues. We find that people, because they've jettisoned truth, they've jettisoned this idea of God, they find themselves unable to answer even the most basic questions. It's like they ask questions, and it's like someone putting the, 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 the ball on the, you know, the t-ball, right? And, and they, you should be able to just smack that easy. People can't even answer the easiest questions and smack them out of the ballpark. They get stumbling. Is there a creator? Has God spoken? Is the Bible true? If we get those questions wrong, those answers wrong, everything else becomes absurd. I'm going to give you a couple examples. If we're not specially created in the image of God, then what's our value? What's the value of a human life? How do you establish it? What's your reference point for it? If we're just expendable flesh and blood, biological masses, incidental, by the way, you know, what's to say we're not to be done away with? You know, in places around the world, uh, organs are harvested, one at the expense at the, to the benefit of another, right? What, what's to say if some government or power or the whim of a would-be parent or family, what establishes value in those contexts if you jettison all idea of God? Nothing. And so we've lost our value and our dignity. If we're not specially created in the image of God, when does life even begin to matter? You know, does a life begin to matter at conception? Does it begin to matter if there's a heartbeat detected? Does it begin to matter if there's a brainwave, brain activity? Does it begin to matter at three months, six months, nine months? That's the question now that is being asked is, what if it's even coming out through the birth canal and is just seconds away from, right? Does its life matter then? When does it matter if it's biologically viable? Does it matter if it's still dependent on its existence within mom's womb, we can't, we as the church with the word of God can't answer that, but the world's like, man, I, they don't know. They don't have any standard for answering that. If we're not specially creating the image of God, what is gender? You know, if you can't get fundamental truth about God, pretty soon you can't even get your own gender right. 
So who am I? What is a man? What is a woman? What's male? What's female? And, and why do we have this wiring? And is it just a, a freak of nature? And, you know, through the brute force of science, we can obscure the line between male and female. But modern science hasn't quite been able to erase gender. And gender has ways of, uh, you know, there's like a it whiplashes back. It boomerangs back. Uh, and, and science, you know, the response is, you know, science will continue to push harder and, and further than ever before to deal with those things. But unmoored from any moral or ethical foundation, unmoored from any idea of God or truth, what is even gender? And so we have people running for the highest offices in our land or whatever, and they're asked, what is a man or a woman? And they're like, they can't answer. They're not qualified. If, if we're not specially created in the image of God, what is race and racism? In Ephesians 3, 14 through 15, the Apostle Paul says, I kneel my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's like, every family has its source and origin in one Father who is God. And I bow my knee in the worship of that God. But if that's not true, if that is true, then even though we might see differences that are skin deep, you know, this person maybe got more sun than this other person or whatever, we are all one family and one common humanity, and that question gets answered. But if we're not all of one God and Father, and if some are like a mixture of hominoid and hominids and hominoid, you know, whatever it is, you know, like pretty soon what you end up with is red against yellow, against black, against white, against brown, against olive. Race becomes not just a trivial matter of, of something skin deep, of a, of a superficial difference, right? Race becomes something that's more deeply defining and more deeply divisive and more deeply unerasable. And, you know, when you don't have a biblical worldview, pretty soon you can't even answer those types of questions and bring about peace and reconciliation between differing peoples. If we're not especially creating the image of God, what is sex and sexuality? What is marriage? In Ephesians 5.12, Paul says, it's shameful to even mention what godless people do in secret. But what we know now is that as it relates to sex and sexuality, what is even shameful these days? What is off limits? Where, what, what line should we abide by? Because, like, when do we go across the, the, the line? And, and will that line matter, that matters today, will it even matter a year from now, much less weeks from now or a decade from now? What was shameful and where the line was just a few years ago has all been, now it's all mainstream. It, 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 that line just constantly shifts and accelerates to new places. So, other than your personal sensibilities, which means how you were raised and what you think and feel, or public sensibilities, which are mostly shaped by Hollywood and entertainment and cable news and government, of, you know, like, the public seems okay with this, so it's okay. That's my new standard, right? Or personally, I feel this way. When you jettison any idea of God and truth, there's no moral or ethical principle to govern us. And we can't even answer basic questions about what is marriage, what is sex, what is gender, all these things. So the old adage keeps getting proven over and again. 
that if God doesn't exist, if there's no foundation here, see, all things become permissible. Now, we're talking about the family, that we live in a day where whatever design or desire that a person has for family, marriage, sex, gender, like, it is not only happening, but it is thrown up in everyone's face and it's normalized and celebrated in, in every avenue that we find ourselves in. So when we did our Genesis series, we talked about the days of Noah. And in the days of Noah, every intention of man's heart was only evil continually. There was no reference point of God. Everybody just did what was in their heart. Lawlessness. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and filled with every kind of violence. There was nothing that seemed off limits. And I look at the paper, uh, I look at the news, and what category of violence isn't happening right now every single day in some way, in some place, part of the world. People's hearts were hard in the days of Noah. Their ears were tired of hearing about anything righteous. No one repented, nor did they think they needed to. Repent of what? No one was seeking God. And the Bible continually references the days of Noah throughout the Old and New Testament this way. In those days, everyone did what seemed right to them. Have you noticed that those days are these days, nowadays? And when you read about the last days, okay, go to the other end of the spectrum. Don't go back to Noah. Go, go into the future, right, when Christ returns. The last days are kind of like these days as well. First Timothy 3, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, know this, hard times are going to come in the last days. I, maybe we're there. People will be lovers of self as their moral, ethical principle. They will be lovers of money because money is the means. They will do anything for money and rob anybody and take advantage of anybody and exploit anything to get ahead financially. People will be boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to their parents. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to, my parents were too square for me, so I got to be round. I got to be a round peg over here. You know, I got to be different. I got to rebel against that because what's old and, and, and what's come it can't be good. Like what I want, my way, right? Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers. Without self-control, you know, we used to, like I was, road rage is a very serious thing. Some of you, have you ever had road rage? Have you ever had somebody that had road rage? I got flicked off the other day just because I was parked in a spot waiting for my wife and some guy was like, you know, I was like, well, okay, whatever. But, uh, but I'll tell you, road rage was one level, but now there's like stage rage where if people don't like the joke being told or the speaker, they, they charge the stage, you know, so I don't have any bodyguards up here. I'm going to have to defend myself, but... People without self-control, it's like, wow, that happened at the, you know, whatever. Brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, you see it, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. And Paul says, you better avoid these kind of people. We might be surprised at how fast and far down the slippery slope we've slid but I don't think God is surprised at all because he warned us about it. He prepared us for it. And, and he enables us to live 
in the realities today. In Matthew 13, there's a parable that Jesus tells. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and then went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and they said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in this field? Like, didn't you look at the label? I mean, was there any weed mixture in there? You know, they always have that label, right? Where did these weeds come from? And the owner of the field said, an enemy did that. And so this is the world in which we now find ourselves from now all the way up through the last days. And it started even with Jesus. It goes all the way back to the days of Noah. Both good seeds and bad seeds have been sown into our culture. There are good seeds that you can look back to and trace the history. Like, it is a beautiful thing. There are some beautiful things about our culture. But there's also some bad seeds that have been sown. And those are also, right, flourishing. There's both good seeds and bad seeds that have taken deep root. Not just in our culture, but in every level of everything, including your heart and my heart. You see, the good and the evil is not just an external relational thing out there. Good and evil comes right down even into our own hearts. There are things that have taken root in your heart that are good and evil. And there is good seed and bad seed bearing fruit in our culture and in your life. You love the good fruit, but there are some things that have manifested in your life, your family, your marriage, maybe in your sexuality, maybe in a lot of different areas of your person, and you're like, Oh, I'd like to weed that out. Uh, the cynical, despairing side of me laments the weeds. The optimistic, hopeful side of me celebrates the good wheat. The reality is they're all entangled together, worse than any knot that you or I could undo. But the question remains, what do we do with the weed? that are there, the, the weed and the weeds. In Matthew 13, 28, the servants asked the owner, do you want us to pull them up? Because that's what we think is the best thing. Go pull them up. You know, by brute force, by just acts of violence, through social, political, economic power, through activism. Should we use Roundup and round up the weeds? Have you ever uh, tried to kill weeds in your lawn with Roundup? What happened? Sometimes, uh, one time I accidentally used Roundup. Uh, I didn't realize, I thought, I thought I had something else. So much for mixing the chemicals yourself. But what should we do? And the owner says no. Because while you're rounding up the weeds, you're uprooting the wheat and the good with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. You know, at times I get frustrated with uh, certain weeds in my yard. The worst weeds by far are those that present themselves as a grass. So a dandelion, you can nuke it, you can take care of that pretty easily. But there are these grassy weeds that are impossible to kill because they are like grass, and they don't respond to the chemicals that are for full weeds. They're like hybrid grasses. 
And, uh, and they're impossible to kill without killing the good grass. So years ago, I sprayed my whole lawn with Roundup to get a fresh start. I was like, this is going to be a true blue Kentucky bluegrass yard. Every blade that's in this yard is only going to be Kentucky bluegrass. That was my ambition. But just a few years later, those pesky grassy weeds were just as prominent in my yard again. And all this play, and I was like, ah! The worst weeds that we deal with are people who present themselves to have an appearance of godliness, an appearance of wheat, but who are in their character weeds and godless. So in our church, you have weeds and wheat. In your family, you have weeds and wheat. And you yourself, in your heart, are a mixture sometimes. And it may be ambiguous to others about where you are even sometimes. I'm sorry to say it, but it's true. There are some things that only God himself can sort out. And the complex nature of entwined weeds and wheat is one of those things. God isn't surprised by the present state of affairs. But this also doesn't mean there's nothing we can do about it. Because what we know is that with God, all things are possible. By the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, by the sanctifying power of his Holy Spirit, through his holy word, God can give new birth again. And he can take weed and make it into wheat. And so if he is just beginning that process, we got to be careful. We might be nuking something that's in transformation in our own families, in our own lives. And so we, gotta, we may not be the best judges of what needs to happen and what remedy and, and what needs to be extricated. or Let them grow together because God's doing something in the midst of this mess that starts in your own heart and emanates out. These past months I've been going over the New Testament just like pouring over it and you know, people play this game where they'll pit the Apostle Paul against Jesus. So in his letters, the Apostle Paul, he wouldn't mince words like 2 Timothy 3. I mean, he lays it out, and he would just denounce. Paul would denounce unholy things that he saw in the church. He wasn't denouncing governments and, like, not that he didn't allude to certain things, but he was concerned when the church became like the culture, and he would confront the church, and he would not mince words and so there's people that read Paul and they're like, I don't like Paul, you know, because he's kind of, you know. And, and it's like, well, okay, I like Jesus. He's so much nicer than Paul. But then I think, have you read Jesus? Which Jesus are you talking about? Because when you read the Gospels, Jesus, you know, people invoke Jesus as if he were somehow more tolerant, more affirming, or even more oblivious to things. And he's not, not in any way. Have you read Revelation? I don't know. Anyway. Case in point, Matthew 19. Matthew 19 is a teaching for the family. The Pharisees were pressing Jesus on matters of marriage and adultery and divorce. And like fleshly men, they wanted to have the widest margin of freedom in regards to marriage and, and adultery and divorce. And, you, you know, like that's men, sinful men. And they were trying to present their case and they were pitting Moses against Jesus. Paul hadn't had his conversion yet. They would have had fun with him too. But in the law of Moses, Moses seemed to permit divorce. And they took some things and, you know, like Pharisees do. And, and pretty soon, you know, there was all these different grounds by which a person could abandon his marital covenant and divorce and pursue a new relationship. And they wanted to know what Jesus thought of their 
constructed theology. And as in everything, Jesus always, he even took Satan himself right back to the word of God. What does the word say? So in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Jesus says, haven't you read? So he's talking to these Pharisees. Let's go to the Bible and let's go back to Genesis for a minute. Haven't you read? I'm going to just say this. Even in our churches, most people, the answer to that question is, you haven't read. You think you've read. You've heard people talk about what they think they've read. Have you read? That might be a good starting point. Have you read what the Bible says about being a man, a woman, a husband, a wife, gender, sexuality, life, death, all these social issues? Have, have you read? But I digress. He replied, the word says that he created them in the beginning and he made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And they're no longer two but one flesh. And more than that, what God has joined, so God's part of this union, and there's a spiritual dimension and reality to it. What God's joined together, let nobody separate. Have you, you guys remember reading that any time in your life? So he's poking at him a little bit. But this is a classic example right here, guys. That if you jettison the truth of God, the truth of his word, all things become permissible. And what the Pharisees were doing is they were jettisoning parts of scripture because they wanted to live a more permissive life sexually and in their marriage. If, if your desire is to walk in darkness, the first target for you is scripture. You've got to you got to suppress that thing because it's going to convict and challenge and usurp your agenda, right? So the Pharisees had an agenda, and, and it was being usurped. And Jesus like, whoa, guys, not so fast. If you're a person under God's authority, your concern isn't what seems right to you or what seems right to another person. It's what's the good, pleasing, revealed, perfect will of God. And that's what Jesus brings them back to. And he tells them that the only reason that Moses even made any concessions wasn't because of an issue of truth in the word. It was because of a human condition, the hardness of your hearts. That Moses released you to your sin because you were so hard. It's the same thing that God does in Romans 1. Is every time humanity reaches another level of hardness, God releases them to the thing that's the desire of their heart so that they can be chastened by the hardship of that thing that maybe they would repent and turn back to God. And, and there's all these levels where God, he releases and releases and releases and releases. But at some point there's going to be judgment if a person doesn't repent and come back to God. And, and that's what Moses was doing. And Jesus points it out. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart. But it's not supposed to be that way. I tell you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He totally nukes their whole game here. Now the disciples are sitting there and they're incredulous. And they say, if it needs to be a man and a woman for a lifetime and they're to be in this covenantal faithful, it's better not to marry. And that's where a lot of people are today. It's like, oh, that's God's will for my life, my marriage, my sexuality, my gender, my family. Like, Maybe it's better. Maybe I, maybe I, it's better just to give up on God's design altogether and do, and go my own way. That's where a lot of people are. 
But Jesus says, you know, not everybody can accept what I'm saying. Only those to whom it's been given. There's wheat and wheat. Not everybody can accept what Jesus is saying. And I think we have to deal with the reality of that and, and just realize not everybody can accept it. What we're talking about this morning, not everybody's going to accept it, even in this room. I think this is the fundamental issue for the church today. God has given his word to those who will accept it. And the best way to reset in your life, your family, personal life, spiritual life, family life, it's always to come back to the fundamentals that there is a God and to turn to that God and to take him at his word and trust and live into what he has laid out. That is the refresh button, reset button for your family and for you. Have you not read? That's where you start. Let's go read and discover God's design for men, women, all these things. Ah, oh, but the Bible's so archaic. And Jesus didn't know about the modern family. And he didn't know about modern times and modern pressures. And Jesus was in his own echo chamber in Matthew 19. Uh, he didn't know about modern issues of gender and marriage and sexuality and transgender and all this stuff, right? I'm going to say the same thing to you that Jesus said to the Pharisees. Have you not read? Because you go right to Matthew 19 and he's talking about God's design for marriage and immediately addresses a very modern and contemporary issue and that is, what about people who are in a circumstance, physically, biologically, or in whatever way you want to define it, and can't participate in God's perfect design of marriage? Like, what if someone's a eunuch? Oh, now here we go, Matthew 19, 12. Jesus says, he says, you know, there's eunuchs. And there's different categories of eunuchs. You know what a eunuch? It's a person who is sexually ambiguous. I'm saying that in a, a hopefully a friendly, family-friendly way. There's no kids in here, I don't think, but anyhow. How does that happen? One of three ways. Some were born that way from their mother's womb. Oh, Jesus knew about that? Uh, there are some eunuchs that become that way because they're made that way by other men. And there are some who are eunuchs that made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. There were people for religious, out of religious fanaticism thinking that they could become something spiritually if they altered themselves physically that would castrate themselves or whatever they did. I don't know how they did it, but I, don't want, I didn't want to dig into it anymore. So. And Jesus says, you can accept my word, and if you're able, you should. Now, there are people born sexually ambiguous. We shouldn't be surprised. Every aspect of our flesh has fallen under the curse because of Adam and Eve. It's conceivable that a person can be born a eunuch just as conceivable as it is that a person might be born blind. Like the man in John 9, he was born blind. But the way that he was born, even though he was born blind from his mother's womb, that wasn't God's design or purpose or plan for his life. Because by God's grace, God wanted to take a man who was born a certain way and display the glory of God in his life. And that's what happens in this situation. What if a person is born a eunuch? There's a psalm that says the kingdom of God, God's grace, is even for the eunuch. 
So God in his grace can take something that we were even born with and bring about a very different reality for that person, even though that person still might not be able to participate in marriage and sexuality in the ways that are normative by God's word. Now Jesus says some are born that way. He says some are made that way. Some are made eunuchs by men. Now he's talking about the Babylonians, the Syrians, the Romans, that when they captured somebody, that the way that they would emasculate their enemy, modern warfare, you castrate the men, which you kill them or you castrate them, but it kind of has the same effect where you emasculate their energy, their drive, and right? So conquerors would make men into eunuchs, and they would be maimed from war, and then the fallout is what do you do with somebody who can't function in the normal designs of sexuality because of they were conquered by an enemy, okay? Jesus knew about it. There are some people that are groomed into being eunuchs. There are people who are malicious that will take a young person and try, in Roman culture, try to make them into an androgynous sex toy or whatever. There are, that was going on, and Jesus knew all about it. And Herod was in the middle of that. Uh, there are people who are pressured by a stronger partner, and they're a weaker person, and they are groomed into the designs of this stronger person. If you meet with a couple, like I've sat down, or, you know, there's often a stronger and a weaker. And the stronger person, you plant the seeds, and this person's coming under conviction, and, and they're getting excited about being forgiven and maybe having a different path. And this person sees what God's doing and snatches those seeds because they're threatened because here's someone speaking, the truth will set you free, and I don't want, I want this person to be captive to my will, so let's get out of here. Let's get out of this, let's get out of this church. Let's get out of the Word. Let's get... There's that going on. But then Jesus also says there's people that make themselves a certain way. And this is the crisis of our youth today, is that there's an explosion of youth today where it's trendy. And, you know, for all the influences out there, there's peer influences, there's social media, there's Disney movies or whatever. Like, there's a lot of stuff. It's trendy now to become something different than what you are, and so that's a whole other conversation. But none of these temporal conditions, my point is, none of these temporal conditions or circumstances negate the truth of God, marriage, gender, sexuality, because it wasn't to be that way in the beginning. And the way we reset is we keep coming back, and we live into God's design to our fullest capacity regardless of what's happened. And that's obedience and that's submission. At the present time, as it relates to family, we're at a kind of crossroads. And the core issue is will we return to God, return to his word, that times of refreshing may come, or will we turn away from God and from his word to what seems right in our own eyes? And that's an issue for the church, and I'm talking to the church, not just the culture. Sometimes if there are weeds in the yard, we'll nuke the good and bad with Roundup. We'll take this scorched earth approach and kill everything. And, but sometimes we look across the fence for greener, lusher, less weedy grass. And, and we think that there might be something more refreshing and beautiful and better for my life outside of God's 
will across the fence than what I have now. And so people abandon their marriage covenants, they abandon their family, they abandon God's design for gender, marriage, sexuality. We experiment, whatever. But the more we abandon God and abandon his designs and will and his word, the more the pain gets magnified. And when the world sees that pain, they see people that are depressed and anxious and insecure and fearful and and discontent and even suicidal. And I say, well, the reason they're that way is because they've been oppressed by the shame of this godly life over here. And and they're like being beat up and bullied, and that's why they want to. I have a different interpretation. That the pain becomes so great apart from God that even self-destruction seems like it would be a relief from the pain that comes in disobeying God's designs. Proverbs 14.12 says, there's a way that seems right to a person, but you follow it out, in the end it leads to a death. Jesus' invitation is contrary. He keeps taking us back to our creator and he keeps taking us back to his word. And he says, if you're willing to accept it, trust it, live into it, receive it, my commands, they won't be death, they will be life to you. The way that is right to God in the end leads to life. Proverbs 1, 93, I'll never forget your commandments for by them you give me life. You want to reset? Have you read it? Have you read? I think we have to come back here and let God guide us into the life that he intended for us all along from the beginning. And we will do that in the presence of weeds, even in our own families, in our own church. But we should continue to be the people God's called us to be. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for your word. It saves us from the malaise of culture. It saves us from the foolishness. Everyone's going their own way. And we are drawn to the way that's right in your eyes. We want to know your good, pleasing, and perfect will for our families and our gender, our sexuality, our lives. And this is a place where we seek it and pursue it and find life and freedom through your word. We thank you uh, for for, uh, not abandoning us to ourselves, but speaking to us through your word this morning. We thank you for doing that by your spirit and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.